if you could, please open your Bibles to the epistle of First John. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2. Thus far in the letter, John has expressed the, one of his overarching desires for us is that we would share in his fellowship with God. And toward that end, we saw uh, John begin with a theology statement meant to illumine our path forward. John taught us that God is light. And last time I was able to exhort from this pulpit, I, I left you all on a cliffhanger. We had only just begun to examine what it means to walk in the light. And we focused on the importance of confession and repentance. And I am now eager to pick up where we left off. And I spent a lot of time this week uh, with this text, just digging and, and, and seeking what the Lord would have me say. And John has many wonderful things for us this morning. And I pray that as we look at this passage together, that together we will experience the comfort that John wants us to find in Christ, that we will see Jesus lifted up for us to behold, and that we will learn discernment as John wishes. So let us now give ear, and may God bless the reading of his holy and inspired word. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you that you have purposed to disciple us through your word. And so I pray, Father, that you would work in spite of my weaknesses as I seek to exposit this passage and that you would attend all who hear these words, may your word penetrate our hearts. And may, through the work of your spirit, may we come to a greater assurance of your goodness towards us. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I said in, in this passage, John wants to comfort you with Jesus Christ. He wants you to behold Jesus Christ, and he wants you to learn discernment. But before we, we can even jump into the meat of this passage, examine with me how John addresses us. 
In the opening words of our passage, John tenderly addresses us as my little children. John is writing to us, his spiritual children. And to understand the full weight of our passage this morning, we need to listen as little children. It doesn't matter whether you still live under your parents' roof or if you are lying on a deathbed. It is good and right for a Christian to consider ourselves as children to God. Jesus himself taught in Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because like children, none of us are fully matured. As children, we are in need of plain instruction, as we are unable to look after ourselves, and we are in need of daily provisions of grace. And one of the chief sources of God's grace to us is His Word. And so John writes to us. John, as a loving spiritual father, kneels down, so to speak, and and takes us by the hand. And he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The amazing thing is, up to this point, John has, his voice has just resonated with apostolic authority. He has been using lofty language to describe deep theological truths. But now, he slows down and speaks to us with simple words to ensure we don't miss the point. He says, in in summary, the reason I've been writing these things, dear children, is so that you will not sin. Now, with this we see John correcting a possible error. We've already seen John do away with the one error that we could possibly escape this life without having sinned. Here, John does away with another error, uh, the, the error of thinking that a Christian is unable to do anything but sin. While we remained in darkness, it was impossible for us to do anything but sin. But now as children of God, we've been gifted the Holy Spirit. We, as Christians and children of God, get to feast upon Christ and His Word and sacrament. And through Christ, we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness. Thus, by God's good grace, dear Christian, we are able to not sin. And John writes us to help us not sin. We're sometimes really good at focusing on our indwelling sin. We're good at downplaying the imperfections of everything we are, but don't miss the weight of John's words here. You are able to not sin. And Paul likewise exhorts us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, flee youthful passions like children. Youthful passions. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on God from a pure heart. And note those words from a pure heart. If the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin, then we indeed have a pure heart. God has removed the heart of stone and given us the heart of flesh. And a person with such a heart has come to truly know God. And anyone who has come to know God will not want to sin. Those who know God will want to walk 
in the light as he is in the light. They will want to be holy as he is holy. They will want to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. Those words might shock you, but for those with a tender conscience, these words can be a cause for concern. As you hear of the God of radiant light, as your sins are exposed, and you hear that call to be perfect, that can be overwhelming for a Christian with a tender heart. As you hear those words, perhaps you doubt your salvation because you struggle to live righteously, or you struggle to quit those habitual sins in which you feel so entangled. Perhaps you ask yourself, if I don't act like an obedient child, how can I be sure that I really am a child of God? By way of analogy, how can we know that we are a Peter and not a Judas? Both turned their back on Jesus, but only one, only one persevered. How can we know? Assurance of salvation is a great gift. In our confession of faith this morning, we read that it is a blessing of God to have assurance of God's love, peace of conscience. It is a gift, but not every Christian has the gift to the same degree. Sometimes I think that I could probably use a little more humility. <laughs> but there are some Christians who really struggle to believe that God could save them. I remember during my time at Bible college, I worked at a coffee shop, and I got to serve alongside this one dear, uh, this one dear older woman, and she was a precious and loving Christian, well-versed in the scriptures, but she desperately fought against oppression and anxiety. And as we got to work together, she, she would confide in me how d- these dark thoughts would just rob her of her assurance of God's love her peace of conscience. She would, with tears, tell me of her struggles and and her struggles against sin and her, her struggle to believe. Perhaps this morning you find yourself in a similar plight. Christians can experience such emotions, such darkness, such doubts, especially if and when we, we look at our sin if, we, if we're, we're focusing on our sin, especially as it, as it is exposed to the radiance of God's light, it is not uncommon for us to become our own worst accusers. On top of that, the world stands to accuse us. And Satan, the great accuser, will take any opportunity to cause us to despair. We are like children because we disobey. But John, like a wise and gentle father, he knows our struggles. And so he continues with these words. But if anyone does sin. True, we are able to not sin, but John knows we still do. And so John wants to comfort us with Christ. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and also not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
those are worth camping on. Those, these words Sinclair Ferguson describes as some of the most precious words the Apostle John ever penned. These are words of tremendous comfort for the children of God, and especially for those who struggle to believe they are saved. As your own conscience, the world, and the devil all stand to testify against you, how can you be sure you are saved? And the answer is simple, though it may not always seem so. The answer is you can know you're saved by trusting in Jesus and looking to him. Again, they sound simple, and it does not always seem simple in practice. But to borrow the words of the great hymn before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward look and see him there who made an end of all your sin. You see, we are, turned, we are called to turn away from sin, and we do so by turning our gaze upon Christ. And if you trust in him, then know that your sins cannot keep you from fellowship with God because Jesus keeps you for himself. So in those dark moments when you doubt or or your conscience accuses you, cling, cling to Christ. Feel the light of God shining on you because, dear saint, in the grandeur of God's light, It is true that the remaining darkness in our hearts is exposed, but in doing so, it pushes us to turn and cling to Christ. And you can be sure that Jesus clings onto you. You may still be saying to yourself, it sounds too simple. How can I be assured of my salvation? Simply by trusting and turning to Jesus. Isn't that the very problem I struggle with, is to trust? John begins to answer this question by holding up Jesus before you so that you can see him with greater clarity. How can you be sure you were saved? By looking to Jesus? Well, let's look. Fellow children, let us look at Jesus. Let us behold, as our text says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate. He is our propitiation. Jesus, the righteous. This title means that Jesus not only performs righteous actions, but he is righteousness. Jesus not only perfectly kept the law and obeyed his Father, but Jesus is the sum total and fulfillment of the law. And as such, Jesus is not only the perfect candidate to be our advocate, and our propitiation, but he is the only candidate because no one else could be worthy of such a title, Jesus Christ the righteous. But John doesn't stop there. He says, behold, Jesus the righteous is your advocate. And this word advocate has a legal background. Uh, In other words, you can say Jesus is our lawyer. He's our lawyer who stands before the great judge, God the Father, and he pleads your case. And you can be sure that because he is perfect righteousness, Jesus does not need to rely on crafty arguments or legal loopholes to defend you. Jesus, in other words, is not a slimy lawyer who grovels before the judge pleading your honor. No, 
Jesus is the righteous lawyer who with resplendent glory says, my father. And then he makes his case. But what are the grounds of his defense? So John says, behold, dear saints, Jesus the righteous is your propitiation. Now, propitiation, if advocate had a legal background, propitiation has a deeply religious background. It takes us to the place of atonement. As our propitiation, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the sin offering that satisfied the Father's wrath. And so Jesus can advocate before his Father, saying, is not this child, is not this child whom I came to save? Am I not this child's propitiation? Have I not paid for this child's sins with my own blood? Did I not suffer for this dear child so that he may experience your love? Did I not take your wrath so that he may be forgiven? And did I not clothe this child in my righteousness so that you may declare him not guilty? Those are the grounds of his defense. Jesus, the righteous, our advocate and propitiation, the lawyer and the lamb. But this good news doesn't sit for just a few select people. John amplifies our vision and celebrates the scope of Jesus's atonement when he says that it's not just for us, but also, he says, for the sins of the whole world. John here is not teaching universal salvation, that something to the effect of that Jesus's death removes everybody's sins regardless if they believe or not. John explicitly denies such a teaching in places such as 1 John chapter 5, 16, wherein he, te- he teaches that there are those who commit sins leading to death. Rather, Jesus, or John, is saying that God's plan of salvation is bigger than you can imagine. It's grander than you can think. John is celebrating that salvation is not reserved for a few in a certain time or place because through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, salvation has gone forward to all believers in all times, in all places. And this was the Father's plan from the beginning. This is why Jesus came. John recorded for us in his gospel the precious words of John 3.16, right? He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this is good news for us who live such a long time after Jesus or John or the early church were still on earth. It's good news for us because it means that Jesus, the lamb, our propitiation died also for us. More than that, It means that Jesus, the lawyer, our advocate, also still lives for us who believe. And so John holds up Jesus. He said he wants us to behold him and he wants us to turn to him and he wants us to be saved. Just as Moses held up the bronze snake in the wilderness so that the Israelites could turn to it and be saved, John says, look to the cross. 
to see your sins put away and God's wrath satisfied and turn and behold the living Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is interceding for you even now. And so for you who struggle to believe that you could be saved, who feel overwhelmed when your conscience avails you, do you still cling to Jesus? Do you look upon him? If you do so, let me ask you questions from out of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Those are words of assurance. Assurance of salvation is found by looking to Jesus and not at ourselves. So when you face those doubts, when your conscience accuses you, look to Jesus. Behold the man and experience the comfort of knowing him. Now, John, like a good father, fathers have a lot of words to say. He has more to say to us. He wants us to learn discernment. He writes, I'm going to read the whole three verses because they're actually one tight, compact argument. I want you to have the context, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, I wanted to read that all because at first glance it might seem to contradict everything I just said. I said our assurance of salvation is found by looking to Jesus. But here John says... We can know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. It's almost as if John is asking us to look down in a way. Is that not a contradiction? My short answer is no, it's not. My longer answer is that's not what it means. Now let me flesh out why that's not what it means. John is not saying that our assurance comes from keeping God's commandments. But obedience is an evidence that we have come to know God. And John wants us to be able to discern God's work in our lives. I like to read this, this portion of Scripture uh, in what I call a dad voice. <laughs> um, John is writing to us in what I call a dad voice. Now, the dad voice I don't know when it happened for me. I don't know if it was as soon as my daughter was born or it was the first time she did something wrong. But the dad voice is when a father can address their child. It could just be one word. It could just be their name. But a father has this ability to address their child. And no matter what's going on in that child's mind, they listen. They hear that dad's voice and they look. And somehow, by some good grace of God, the father can somehow simultaneously communicate tenderness that I care, but also sternness. You better stop. (laughs) And that's kind of what John's doing here. 
It's a, it, this is John, like a good father, helping a child to practice discernment, speaking with tenderness, but also with a, a gentle sternness. So G, John is not making us turn our eyes away from Jesus to look for ourselves for assurance. Rather, John wrote these verses so that they could be an aid for us to discern or to see the evidences of Jesus's work in our lives. And they are also a gentle but stern correction to those who rely upon themselves for salvation. To demonstrate what I mean, consider with me the example of the rich young ruler. If you would like, you could turn in your Bibles briefly to Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. And in this, but this story is familiar. In this story, we meet a man who looked to his own law-keeping for assurance, but clearly did not find it there. Because, as we see, he approaches Jesus to inquire about how to attain eternal life. So, Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who was good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love this part. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? You see, superficially, the young man may have seemed to keep the commandments that Jesus listed. But there was still something missing, and he knew it. So Jesus, wanting to help him discern what's missing, Jesus probes a little deeper into the issue, into the heart. And so we read in verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The young man apparently could keep a litany of commandments, but he could not keep this one. Jesus' final command was the one thing he could not do because he had a deeper heart issue. And he, he lacked the discernment to, to see that issue. And we know that because he walked away. He didn't follow. He walked away sorrowful. Likewise, dear saints, as we read these words of John here, do not read them and think he means we are going to be able to keep Jesus' commandments perfectly, because that's not the point. John has already made it clear that you cannot. When John says that we are to keep his commandments or that we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, he is speaking to the deeper heart matter, just like he saw Jesus do, to help us discern our actions. So, and what is the deeper heart issue? It's love. It's love. In John 15, 10, and 12, Jesus taught, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what John's getting at. This is the deeper heart issue. Love. Love for God. Love for others. And John says in verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And that word perfected is a wonderful word to sit and think upon. Firstly, as we sit and look at this word, we can see that it is God through Christ who has perfected his love in us. Our ability to love God and to love others is a work done in us by God. Now, as I've already told you numerous times, this is the epistle that I was reading for my Greek class, so I'm going to bring up the Greek. Be patient with me. It is written in the passive voice. You may have heard the difference between active and passive voice, even in the English. But what that means is this this perfecting work is a work done on us, not by us. Our law-keeping, then, our keeping the Word, is not what causes God's love to be perfected in us. God is the one that perfects His love in us. And our keeping His Word is the fruit. Secondly, as we camp out on this word perfected, we see that it is an assured reality that one day we will perfectly love even if we currently don't. The Greek word teteleotai, meaning perfected, it's used in a special way to refer to uh, God's past action, which has continual impact in referring to a future state. And if that's really hard to understand, let me ask you a question. Do you love as Jesus commanded Do you love as Jesus loved? And I must confess that I I don't do either of those perfectly. But the deeper heart issue is that even if you do not perfectly love as you've been commanded, even if you do not perfectly love as Jesus loved, John Calvin says, if you even aspire to that kind of love, according to the measure of grace God has given you, that is evidence of God's work in your heart. And if God is working in your heart, then along with Paul, let me say to you, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so, along with the Apostle John, I ask you to discern for yourselves your actions. Do you, like a little child, cling and trust in Jesus? Do you love him and desire to be in fellowship with him? Do you hate your sin and desire to please your master? When you do sin, do you feel thankfulness for what Jesus has done? And do you endeavor to live for him with renewed vigor? If you can answer yes to those, even if your efforts are not perfect, that is evidence of Jesus' work in your life. And remember, We began by saying the ability to not sin is only true for a Christian. 
Holy, righteous, and godly living marked with love is only possible for someone who truly knows God. And if we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, then we have a pure heart. I said, note those words, a pure heart. We indeed have a pure heart. We've had that heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh given, and a person with such a heart has come to know God truly. And thus we see that our assurance of salvation is not at all by looking at ourselves. It's by looking to Jesus through and through. But John says, also discern for yourselves the evidences of God graciously working in you by growing in you a greater love for him. That's the tender side of John's dad voice. His sternness comes through because as we read these, we are reminded that we must not grow lax in our pursuit of righteousness. Again, heed Paul's exhortation from 2 Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. This kind of pursuit can only flow from a person that loves Christ and is aided by him. And John, John includes for us a negative example that I want to examine with you. He includes a negative example of someone who does not know God, yet claims to. In 1 John 2.4, we read, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, such an example can aid the, uh, the Christian, help us to discern our actions by providing us a warning and a reminder that Christ has provided his righteousness and salvation for the purpose of making us into the holy people of God. As Peter put it in his first letter, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we pursue holiness. We do not grow lax. This kind of resolution that can swell up in our hearts, rather than crushing our assurance, should also strengthen our assurance. Because only one who knows God would ever be filled with such a resolution. And as I draw near to the conclusion, it should be noted that John's negative example describes real people. There are people who exist that believe they can achieve eternal life apart from trusting in Christ. There are people who exist that, frankly, don't care either way. And such a person may live a life of debauchery. They may be the exact stereotype of what you imagine, or they could look like that rich young ruler, outwardly, superficially, moral, but still not good enough. Because apart from Christ, there is no truth in their claim to know God. Their knowledge of God is a fiction. John calls them a liar. And so, I conclude by speaking to such people. I want to speak to those who have not trusted in Christ. If you wish to have eternal life, if you at all feel the tugging of the Spirit on your heart, 
then do not, do not miss what John has held up for you to see. It must be through Jesus Christ the righteous that you have, can have salvation. To know, to know God is to have eternal life. And you can only know God by turning to Jesus and trusting in his work as our atoning propitiation and as our advocate. You cannot put your trust in yourself. There is no other way. Apart from Christ, there is only damnation. And so I ask you, do you see yourself as a miserable sinner, hopeless and in need of help? If so, that's a good place to be because it is at that moment when you turn to Jesus that you can experience his comfort, his salvation, and his help. And then you can join along with all of us other struggling saints. You can join us in living forever in the light of God's glorious grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our great Father, we thank you for shining your light, for sending the light of the world, Jesus Christ, into the darkness to redeem us who are trapped in darkness. By shining your light on us, you have called us into your kingdom. And when our, and when our weaknesses seem too great to bear, when our guilts are too overwhelming, when we begin to doubt how you could love a sinner such as I, help us always to turn to Jesus Christ, to see him living for us, and to see the work he has done. Help us to trust in him and to live a life of obedience unto him, we ask in his holy name. Amen.